0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Welcome to our live Q&A. Serena? I'm Serena, and remember to subscribe, click the notifications, and smash that like button. Yes, okay, and what's so great about this is that it was our grandkids' ideas, Jay and Serena, Serena especially, who came up with a question months ago, and our great Enduring Word staff thought, why not have a kids' Q&A? And so, Jay, you just want to say hi to everybody? Hi, Welcome. My- hi, my name is Jay. Welcome to the kids' Q&A. Our firefly here is here to answer all of your questions. Fantastic. Great. Okay. Wonderful, kids. Glad you could join me here for the beginning. Sorry we had a false start. (laughs) We're on our way now. Okay. You guys can watch it later. See you. Say bye to everybody. Bye. Okay. So, man, rough start here, but a great start with those adorable grandchildren of ours. Jay and Serena are, uh, well, grandchildren are a great blessing. Are they not? So, uh we did have this idea based on a question that my granddaughter Serena had. And based on that question, we decided why not do a live kids Q and a, and that's what it's all about today. So here's what we did. We had people from our enduring word audience come and send in uh, questions uh, on video kids questions. And so we're going to answer them step-by-step. And the first question comes here from Hannah, who's eight years old, from Nevada. So let me get this set up and hopefully all this is gonna work correctly here. Let me try this and uh, maybe it'll work right the first time. Let's try. Here's Hannah's question. Hi, my name is Hannah. I have a question for you. Who made God? Bye. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Hannah. Great question and I'm glad that you asked it. Hannah's question is simply this, Who made God? Now, we have a similar question from Levi, who's five years old and uh, is in Georgia. And we're going to play Levi's question here. It's a similar question to Hannah's, so we're going to address them here at the same time. Let me cut over to Levi's question. Here's Levi's question. Pastor David, where did God come from? Well, that's a good question too, isn't it? Hannah asks, who made God? Levi is asking, where did God come from? And Hannah and Levi, I want to thank you for your questions and say, this brings us back to our basic understanding of who God is. God is what we call an uncreated being. You guys understand that everything has to be made by something else. A big apple tree is made from a little apple seed, and that little apple seed was made from an apple tree that came before it. You know that uh, mommies and daddies make children. You know that dogs make puppies. You know that people make buildings and automobiles and computers and all the rest of it. Everything is made by something or somebody except for God by definition, God is not created. God um, has no creator. Somewhere along the line, there has to be something or somebody who begins everything, who is the uncreated creator. So Hannah, just to put it very simply, who made God? Nobody. Nobody. God has always existed. Levi, where did God come from? God came from his own being. God has always been. So thank you so much, uh, Hannah and Levi, for your questions. Now we're going to get to a question from Kinsley, who's six years old, and she asked her question from California. Here's Quinn Kinsley's question. She has two questions, actually. Why does God not go to bed, why does God let evil in the world? Okay. Why does Uh, God... Let me go on to the next question here. Kinsley asks a great question here. Number one, why does God not go to bed? And number two, why does God let evil in the world? Okay, Kinsley, let's talk about the first question. Why does God not go to bed? Because he's God and there's no limit to God. There's no limit to his understanding. There's no limit to his power. There's no limit to his wisdom. There's no limit to his authority. God has no limits. You know that we as people, we live with limits all the time. We can only go so many hours before we get tired and have to sleep. We can only go so many hours until we're hungry and we have to eat. We can only go so many hours until we're thirsty and we have to drink. God is not like that. So he never gets tired. There's a verse in the Psalms that says this, He who keeps Israel, that means God, neither slumbers nor sleeps. It's kind of a poetic to say, way to say that God never gets tired. Now, Kinsley, I want you to hold on with me. Because in a moment, I'm going to answer a question from Tristan that's going to give a little bit different spin on the answer I just gave to you. So hold on with that. But before we get to Tristan's question, I want to answer Kinsley's second question. Why does God let evil in the world? Kinsley, there's not just one answer to that question. There are several reasons. There's several purposes. But I'll give you one of the biggest reasons. One of the biggest purposes in God allowing or letting evil into the world, it's because in the ultimate world that God is bringing forth, the best world that God is bringing forth, evil had to be present so that God could do a greater work in redemption than he did in creation. Most of us think that God's greatest work is creation, and I'm not surprised by that. We look around at the world, and we see how amazing the world is that God has created. From the starry skies above, to the mighty oceans, to the beautiful mountains, to the most intricate beauty in a little puppy, to the beauty in all sorts of things in this world, we see that God's creation is glorious. But, Kinsley, there's something even more glorious Than creation, and that's God's work of redemption. And God cannot bring forth the greater work of redemption without allowing evil into the world. Thank you for your question, Kinsley. Now the next question comes from Tristan, and I don't know, I kind of wonder, both Tristan and Kinsley are from California, but you're going to see Tristan's question in just a moment here. Let me switch over here to Tristan. Here's Tristan's question. Does God have to be potty trained? Does God, does God have to be potty trained? Well, okay, Tristan, um, let me answer that question in two ways. No, absolutely not. Uh, God is God. He's not a man. He's not a human being in the sense that God is surpassing. He, He doesn't get hungry the way that people do. He doesn't have to sleep the way that Kinsley asked about. Uh, He's not thirsty. And the Bible specifically tells us these things. When the people in the Old Testament brought sacrifices to God, it wasn't because God was hungry or thirsty. It was because he wanted them to honor him with the things that they had. So Tristan, the first answer to your question is no, of course not. God does not have to be potty trained. But Tristan, I'm going to give you a second answer to that question. When I say a second answer, I mean that both of these answers are true. You'll see what I mean. Yes, Tristan, God had to be potty trained. And Kinsley, yes, God had to go to bed. What do I mean? Well, listen, when God added humanity to his deity and came in the person of Jesus Christ, then yes, absolutely, he got tired, and he had to go to bed. Absolutely, Tristan, the baby Jesus had to be potty trained. (laughs) He wasn't born from the womb, potty trained. He was a perfect human being, but still grew up and lived with the weaknesses, maybe I should say it this way, the non-sinful weaknesses that are common to humanity. So, uh, Tristan, God in heaven didn't have to be potty trained, but when God added humanity to his deity, Jesus Christ, who was God among us, yes, he did have to be potty trained. And I got to say, I got a lot of respect for both Kristen, Kinsley, I should say, and Tristan for the theological sophistication of their questions. Here they are asking questions of deep theology about the incarnation and all the rest of it. So thank you so much for your great questions, Kinsley and Tristan. Going to go on now to the next questions that we get from, and by the way, if you're joining us here on our Q&A, you're going to see we're doing something unusual today. Today is the kids Q&A, where we've been preparing this for some months, where we've been asking children to send it. Well, it's not the children that are sending them in. It's their parents and grandparents that have been sending in questions from their children for us to address on today's live Q&A. Now, when we're done with these video and audio questions that have been submitted, when we're done with those, then we will get to uh, whatever questions are there in the live chat. So if you're writing questions to live chat, that's great. However, in the live chat, I've instructed our moderator to give priority to kids in the live chat who want to ask their questions. Yes, it's kids Q&A. And our next question comes from Ela in Germany. I saw Ayla just a few months ago, and her mom and dad sent in this question. So here's Ayla's question. Okay, let me simply translate that for you. What Ayla is asking is, how can I know the Bible is true? How can I know that? Uh, First, Ayla, let me say to you, vielen, vielen Dank for deine Frage, now, uh, Selah also asks a similar question. Selah submitted her question just on a graphic. Here's Selah's question. How do we know that the Bible is true? Selah, eight years old, June 7th, 2023, from the state of California. Thank you, Selah, for your question there. But I want to answer Ela's question, and I want to answer uh, Selah's question. How do we know that the Bible is true? And listen, there's not just one answer to that question. There's many ways to know that the Bible is true. We know that the Bible is true, number one, and to me, this is one of the most outside evidences that the Bible is true. It's the phenomenon of fulfilled prophecy. In Peter, he says that we have the more sure word of prophecy given to us in the word of God. And God has predicted very specific things, the rise of kingdoms, and sometimes even specific rulers by name, God has predicted hundreds of years before those rulers ever emerged. And so we have this really striking phenomenon of God telling us, you can believe that this book, the Bible, has a supernatural origin because I'm going to tell you very specific things that happen hundreds of years before they ever happen. This tells us that there is a supernatural origin to the Bible that makes it unlike any other book. But I'll tell you, Ela and Selah, I'll tell you both another way that we can know. We can know of the way that the Bible changes lives. Now, I know sometimes people will say, I watched a movie and it changed my life. I read a book like some of the books I have here on my shelves and it changed my life. And that's great. Different things have an impact, but there's no book that has ever had the impact across the centuries, across the continents of the world, across the generations of humanity the way that the Bible has. Its truth and its power has shaped humanity unlike any other book. And the other reason we know that the Bible is true (coughs) is because it says with great validity of itself that it's true. It claims to be the Word of God, and we have good reason for believing it to be the Word of God. So, those are just three quick things that come to my mind. Ela in Hamburg and Selah in California. We have fulfilled prophecy We have the life-changing impact of the Bible, and we have what the Bible says about itself to be true. Those are just three reasons that we can take great confidence in. I'll give you just one more. Jesus Christ was affirmed to be God, to be true by his resurrection. And Jesus said that we can and should trust the word of God. He said that heaven and earth would pass away, but God's word would never pass away. That gives authority to the word of God. Okay, the next question we're going to have comes from Emma. She's seven years old and she comes from Georgia. So let's cut over to Emma. Here's Emma's question. If you have God your whole life and you never prayed to be a Christian, where well, are you going to heaven? Wow. Emma's question is a question about salvation. Again, I'm impressed by the theology of these young people. Emma's asking this. If you love God your whole life, but never prayed to be a Christian, will you go to heaven? Well, Emma, I I want you to know, first of all, that if somebody truly loves God— They will also love Jesus Christ and they will love his word. That's one of the important things that Jesus revealed about his life when he was on this earth. Jesus revealed that if anybody, that he was the perfect representation, the perfect picture of who God is. And if somebody doesn't like Jesus, let me put it to you this way. If somebody doesn't love Jesus, then they don't love God at all. So for somebody to love God means they will love Jesus. They will um, have a heart attraction, a devotion, a surrender to Jesus. Because the way that God calls his people to love him goes so far beyond just admiring God, It means to submit the life to God, to trust in Him, to rely on Him, and to cling to Him. Now, Emma, in your question, you put it like this. If you love God your whole life, but never pray to be a Christian, will you go to heaven? Emma, going to heaven isn't really a matter of praying a specific prayer. It's more about doing what God tells us to do, about being followers of Jesus and loving God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and loving Jesus as as God, as who he is, as the Bible presents him to be. I'm not talking about someone trying to save themselves by works because the kind of love that God looks for from his people is a love that believes God and what he says in his word about how we need to trust him and that actually trusts God. So Emma, I guess what I'm trying to say is that being saved is not a matter of praying a certain prayer, but truly loving God. If I answer your question just the way that you asked it, Emma, I would say the person who loves God their whole life would go to heaven because they would love Jesus Christ. They would believe Jesus Christ and they would put their trust in Jesus Christ even as he said we should do. Thank you for that question, Emma. All right, look, we've talked about questions about God, questions about the Bible, questions about salvation. We also had a couple of questions about Satan. So the first question I want to play for you now about Satan comes from Glory, another one of our friends from Germany. Glory's 11 years old, and here's her question. Meine Frage ist, wenn im Himmel alles nur gut ist, wie ist es dann möglich, dass Lucifer böse sein konnte? Thank you so much, Glory, for your question. Again, you could translate her question like this. If everything in heaven is only good, how is it possible that Lucifer was able to do evil? Well, Glory, that's a very good question. And let me just explain it like this. We talked before about the question as to why God allowed evil. God did not create evil in any direct sense, and I'll tell you why, because the Bible says that God can't create evil, he can't do evil, but what God did was he created beings with the capability to do evil, and Lucifer and the rest of the angels were those beings By the way, later, when God created human beings, men and women, he created us with the capability, with the possibility of doing evil. And when God created beings that had the capability or the ability to do evil, then uh, they did evil, such as Lucifer and the angels who fell with him. And it was possible because it was in God's plan To bring something better than the innocence of creation. Again, glory, we usually think, and this is just common, it's just the way we often think. We usually think that the innocence of the world before evil is greater than the world of redemption that God will make that we read about at the end of the book of Revelation when all things are finished and God has finished his great plan of the ages that he reveals to us in his word. But glory, I want you to know that God considers his world of redemption. What God accomplishes at the end of the book of Revelation is even greater than anything that he did in creating the world. So everything in heaven was only good But God allowed evil, God allowed Lucifer to do evil, so that something even better could come forth. And the better thing is the world of redemption. What God gives us in his work of redemption is greater than even the world that we have in a world of innocence. So, glory, as I said to your sister before, vielen, vielen Dank für deine Frage. It's wonderful to hear from our friends in Hamburg. Okay, we have another question on Satan, and this question comes from Remy, who comes from California. Remy, thank you so much for sending in your question. Here's Remy's question. Hi, Pastor David. This is Remy. I have a question about Satan. If the Bible tells us he's been defeated, why does he still deceive people today? Great question, Remy. If Satan has been defeated, then why does he still deceive people today? Well, Remy, the answer to that question is, number one, in the big picture, because it's in God's purpose to allow Satan to deceive people today. God is still working out his purpose in his great plan of the ages. And God's use for Satan... And God's use for the evil that Satan can bring is not finished yet. But I want you to consider this, Remy, that even a defeated foe can still deceive people. If you take away all my weapons and if you make me lose, I can still tell lies about you or lies about someone else. So deception is definitely a work that Satan can do even while he is defeated. But Remy, I want to give one more thought to your question, because it is such a good question. I want to give one more thought to the simple idea of um, why does Satan do it at all? I mean, why doesn't Satan give up? He's been defeated. He knows his doom is certain. Why does he still try at all? And Remy, I want you to think about this. That usually the people who are the worst liars believe their own lies. Now we know that Satan is the worst liar the world has ever seen. And being the worst liar that the world has ever seen, I believe that Satan believes his own lies, that he is self-deceived. And that somewhere in Satan's mind, somewhere in that diseased mind of that being that is called the father of lies. That's how much Satan is a liar. He's called the father of lies. To that same degree, Satan has it in his mind that somehow, some way, he can win in his battle against God. It'll never happen. It's impossible for it to happen. But yet Satan, being a liar, believes his own lies. That's how I would phrase it there, Remy. Thank you so much for your question. Now we have another question from a friend in Germany. They just send it in by uh, email or text message, so I'm just going to throw it on the screen and summarize it here. This question is from Caleb, who's six years old, and he comes from Germany. To make the question very simple, Caleb simply asks, does God love Satan? Oh, Caleb, good question. I tell you, I can't get over what great questions our viewers, our, our kids are sending in. This is a question a lot of adults have as well, Caleb. So let me explain to you the best that I can. I would just simply answer the question, no, God does not love Satan. You might say, now, wait a minute, David. Doesn't God tell us to love our enemies? Well, of course he does. And isn't Satan God's enemy? Well, yes, he is. So should not God love Satan? And that's where I would say, well, wait a minute. We have to consider something. God does not have the same relationship with Satan that people have with one another or that God has with his people, with humanity. Understand this, human beings are made in the image of God, but nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Satan or his angels or the angels that never fell in allegiance with Satan— Nowhere does it say that angelic beings are, uh, are made in the image of God. So that means that there's a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental distance between deity, that's who God is, and the angelic. Deity is closer to humanity than it is to the angelic. All that to say this, Caleb, God has a different relationship with Satan and other angelic beings than he has with people, with humanity, because human beings are made in the image of God, while angelic beings are not. So it's true, God loves people, even though they may be against him, yet God does not love Satan because he's not of a compatible type made in God's image the way that people are. But the quick answer to that question, Caleb, is no. God doesn't love Satan, and he doesn't ask his people to love him either. Let me continue on. Great questions here. Uh, Next, we have a question from Aslan in Germany. He's 10 years old, and Aslan asks two questions. Uh, I'll get to the first question and hope to pause it, and then we'll take a look at the second question. Here's Oslan from Germany's question. He asked this question. Hi, Pastor David. i got two questions for you. The first one is, I heard in Sunday school that some people love God with their lips, but not with their hearts, and so my friends say they're Christians, but they do not act like that, and how can I know if I'm a Christian with my lips or with my heart? Great question, Aslan. Aslan's basically asking this question. People can say that they're Christians, but their life shows that they aren't. So then how can I really know that I love God with my life and not just with my words? Aslan, what makes your question so good is because it would be easy to say... Well, do you just obey God in your daily life? But here's the problem with that, Aslan. Every person sins. Even Christians who really love God fall short of God's standard. Even Christians who really love God will sin sometimes in their life. But here's the difference. When real Christians sin, they feel bad about it. And they want to get it right with God through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Aslan, dear friend, you are correct. There are a lot of people in this world who say that they're Christians, but they have no real relationship with God. There's no change in their life. Their, Their words of being a Christian are just words they say with their lips. There's nothing in their life that demonstrates that they really love God. And how we would know this in our own life is to see Do we feel bad when we sin? Do we have what the Bible sometimes called the conviction of sin? We feel convinced that we are sinners. Is that real in my life? Do we have the desire to get right with God through the work of Jesus Christ when we have done wrong? These are good and valid and important questions for us to ask, to say, What is our attitude towards sin? If there's a Christian or someone who claims to be a Christian and they don't care about sin, they sin and sin and they know they sin and they don't care that they sin, it's fair to ask, is that person's Christian life for real? And if somebody's listening to this and they look at their own life and they say, hey, that's me, you should be concerned for your soul. And you should say, no, I want to have a Christian life with God. I want to have a love for God that's not only in my words but with my life as well. So, Aslan, I would just say the answer to your first question is to look at a person's attitude about sin. Now, let me go to Aslan's second question. He asks this. Hopefully, we're at the same place here. The second question is is how know what rewards there are in heaven? Because it says in the Bible that when you go to heaven, it depends, you get a reward in there. And how do we know what rewards we're getting? Yeah, bye. Bye, Aslan. By the way, I'll see you soon. But uh, Aslan, I want you to know, how do we know what kind of rewards there are in heaven? Well, one kind of reward that's spoken about in heavens are crowns. And so they're going to believe to have crowns. Interesting. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of crowns. There's one kind of crown that's like a trophy for someone who wins, uh, you know, an athletic uh, contest. You know, in Germany, Aslan, they have the Pokal, the cup. Um, So, you know, that's the trophy, the, the award. That's one kind of crown. But then there's another crown of royalty that's given to God's people as well. So crowns are one kind of reward. But I think that there's a special reward that God will give to his people in heaven. And it's the reward of being able to enjoy God and to love him and to know him even more in an even greater way. You know, Aslan, it's really true that the greatest glory of heaven will not be whatever rewards we have, but it'll be our relationship with and our knowledge of God and the capability to love God more, and know God more, that in itself will be a great reward. Aslan, I will say this, on top of all of that, there may be much more that we don't even know about. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe there's going to be awesome rewards that aren't even mentioned in the Bible. That's just the kind of thing that God would do, make awesome things in heaven for his people that he never even tells us about. Thank you, Aslan, for your question. Like I said before, I'll see you soon. Okay, our next question comes from Lucas. Lucas is eight years old. These are in the category of questions about the Christian life. Let's go to Lucas here, eight years old from Georgia. Lucas asks this question. Do you have to get baptized? Pretty short and sweet there, Lucas. He wants to know, do you have to get baptized? Well, Lucas, let me answer the question. Yes, but... You don't have to get baptized to go to heaven, kind of. It's a little bit complicated. Look, there are people in heaven who never got baptized, but um, it was because of some strange circumstances. I think that if a person refuses to get baptized, that shows that there's a real problem in their life a real problem let's say that there's a young person who really believes on Jesus but they just haven't had the opportunity to get baptized yet i believe that if they died they'd go to heaven uh, because again god sees and god knows but that's a very different thing from somebody refusing baptism lucas for anybody who calls himself a christian to refuse to get baptized shows that they have a heart of disobedience or ignorance before God. Now, maybe it's just ignorance. Maybe nobody sat them down with the Bible and taught them about the importance of baptism. That's entirely possible. Then there should be some loving Christians, maybe pastors in their life, who sit down with them at the Bible and tell them about the importance of baptism. But here's the other thing. Baptism is necessary for obedience, Jesus told his people to get baptized. We, as the people of Jesus, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should insist that we get baptized. So you ask the question, do you have to get baptized? I would say this, to be an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ, yes, you have to get baptized. Is it possible for someone to make it to heaven without getting baptized? Yeah, it's possible, but that shouldn't be our bar. We should be the idea that we want to live in ways that are appropriate for obedient followers of Jesus Christ. Right, let me continue on here, going on to the next question from Alexandria. we got just two more questions on the video portion, and then another couple questions, and then we'll take whatever we can from the side chat. By the way, welcome to our uh, YouTube Live Kids Q&A. So pleased that you could join us. Here's the next question from Alexandria, who's eight years old and comes from Nevada. Here is Alexandria's question. My name is Alexandria, and I have a question. What is love? Thank you. Bye. Oh, thank you, Alexandria. What a great question. Eight years old from Nevada, and she wants to know, what is love? Alexandria, there's no better definition that I could give you as to what love is than for you to simply read... 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Alexandria, that's your assignment. You're eight years old. You could probably read it for yourself in a simply translation. But if it's not quite at your reading level, although I'm pretty sure that you could at eight years old, then uh, ask your parents or someone in your life to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That is God's chapter in the Bible where he most specifically describes exactly what love is in every aspect of its character. What is love? It's everything that God says it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't seek its own. And here's the other way to think of love, Alexandria. If you want a definition of true love, Look at the life of Jesus Christ. As you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you find out that you could substitute the name Jesus for the word love all throughout the chapter, where it says love is kind, love is patient, love doesn't seek its own. You could say Jesus is kind, Jesus is patient, Jesus doesn't seek his own. And that's a wonderful way to think of the greatness and the power of love is. We know what love is because God describes it very beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but we also know what love is by looking at the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Which brings us to our last video question. This is from Micah in South Africa. Micah, it's been a long time since I've seen you, but I'm really pleased that you sent in this question. Let me click over to Micah the last video question that we're going to have of today's kids Q&A. We'll answer some more questions after this, but here's Micah's question. Here we go. Good morning, Pastor David. The question I got for you today is, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Micah, thank you for that question. Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Well, Micah, the first thing I got to tell you is I've searched the Bible diligently And there's no mention of Adam and Eve having belly buttons in the Bible. No mention of that whatsoever. However, I do got to say, from thinking through it, I would simply say this, no, Adam and Eve did not have belly buttons. Why? I'll give you some reasons why Adam and Eve did not have belly buttons. Number one, Adam and Eve did not have belly buttons because belly buttons are a very biological thing. Uh, They're where the umbilical cord for the child in the mother's womb connects to the mother. And, um, Adam and Eve didn't come out of a mother's womb. They didn't have umbilical cords, so they wouldn't have belly buttons. I suppose that maybe God could have given them belly buttons that were purely cosmetic, you know, sort of the plastic surgery of the day, but I don't think God did that. I think they had no belly buttons whatsoever the Bible never mentions it and the way that they created that they were created makes us think that they did not now if there's a Bible scholar out there Micah that you know of that likes to make the case that Adam and Eve did have belly buttons then I would enjoy hearing their arguments otherwise thank you so much for your question Micah from South Africa and please give a greeting to your lovely Parents from me and from my wife, Ingelil. We look forward to the next time we can make it out your way. Okay, uh, now having finished with the questions come in from video, now we're going to talk about uh, the questions from kids that have come in from other sources. For example, we got a question from Chase, and Chase, who's 11 years old, asked this question. Okay, ready for this? Chase asked, How did the polar bear? monkey etc get to their correct habitat after the flood it wasn't as if noah took the ark like a bus around the world stopping at different locations so if a polar bear was on a boat how did he make it all the way back to the arctic well i would suggest this to you chase that before and chase i have to say i'm not a scientist All I'm giving you is kind of my understanding of the scriptures and how things could have been. So I'm not trying to make great scientific claims. I'm I'm just trying to understand the scriptures. But but I will say this. It may very well be true, Chase, that before the flood, the earth enjoyed a much more uniform temperature. And there weren't the same extremes of temperature around the globe. If that was the case, then variations within biological species such as a polar bear could have developed after the flood. Different um, variations within animal species that answer to wide swings of climate in different geographical places on the earth would have come about After the flood, not before the flood. And that's the quick answer that I would give you, Chase. Beyond that, I really don't know. There's some people who speculate that the geography of the continents was somewhat different before the flood. And uh, maybe some of that was still in movement and motion immediately after the flood. Uh, That's speculative in nature. But I will just say this, that I would regard that the world before the flood had a much more uniform climate globally and that the changes to the earth after the flood made for the much wider temperature variations and things in the animal kingdom that answered to those wide variations came in genetic differences, no doubt managed by God, in the animals after the flood. That's a quick way that I would answer that, Chase. Thank you for your question. Our next question, and again, we're giving a uh, priority to our kid questioners today. This question comes from Naya, seven years old. Why was Jesus chosen to be the newborn king? And no help from his parents, they promise. Well, Naya, I, I agree with that. And thank you for your question there, Naya. I'm glad you're tuning in today. Well, why was Jesus chosen to be the newborn king? The reason why was because it was in God's plan from the beginning to bring forth the Messiah. And this Messiah was expected as far back as the Garden of Eden. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God promised a deliverer. Someone who would defeat Satan and push back his work, and that deliverer was the Messiah of the of humanity, Jesus Christ Himself. So, uh, Naya's question: Why was Jesus chosen to be the newborn King? Because He was the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy and expectation. He was the one chosen, and especially created and conceived by God in Mary's womb, by a miracle, not under normal human processes, but by a miracle, Jesus was created as God's chosen Messiah. Thank you for your question, Naya. Our next question, and again, just to say, we're taking questions priority from kids today. This question comes from Caleb, who's 12 years old, from Washington State, who asks, Why would there need to be a new heaven if heaven is already paradise? (laughs) Caleb, great question. All right, let me explain to you. In the biblical languages, as in many languages today on the earth, um, the word for sky and heavens are the same word. They use the same word. Now, in English, when we speak, We differentiate between the blue sky and the night sky and the heaven where God dwells. In many languages, including biblical languages, they use the same word for all three. Matter of fact, they kind of classically consider uh, the, the blue sky to be the first heaven, the night sky to be the second heaven, and the heaven where God lives that's the third heaven. So, Caleb, here's just the very direct answer to your question. The heaven where God lives is not remade. But the blue sky heaven and the night sky heaven, the heaven of creation, that is the heaven that's recreated, that's made a new heavens and a new earth. It's not the heaven where God lives, where God dwells. The confusion just comes from the way that they use the same word heaven in all of those circumstances. Okay, next question comes from uh, Term Wegfield, who asked this question, why does God appear to some, but not to all? Well, Tim, let me just say, I, I'm trying to get at the essence of your question here. There are some people, for example, in the Bible, who had remarkable visitations from God. Why? Well, I don't know if that question could be answered. I I could give you an easy answer, sort of a simple answer to just say, well, because they needed it and it was in God's plan, but that's all just kind of obvious. I think the more honest answer is just kind of, we we don't really know for sure. Why? Why God... Uh, believed it was necessary to give some people remarkable visions of himself and in other situations not. So I really don't know, uh, Tim, if there's a, a quality answer to that question other than these are things that are just sort of in the wisdom of God. He knows. He acts. He does what's right. But I will tell you this as well, Tim. God has appeared to all of humanity in two ways. Number one, in creation, everybody's had a witness from God in creation, and in conscience, God has testified to all of humanity. He's revealed himself to them in conscience. So in creation and conscience, God has revealed himself to all humanity, and he's also, in a very special way, revealed himself to humanity by His Word, God's greatest and most complete revelation. Uh, That's why Christians should have a passion to getting the truth of God's Word spread all over the world, because people need to hear what God has said in His Word. But God has revealed Himself to every human being in creation and in conscience. Thank you for your question there, Tim. Next question comes from Straight Talk, who asks, My sister used to be a pastor's wife. She has walked away from the faith and does not follow God any longer. Is it possible she remains saved? Well, Straight Talk, yes, it's possible. Um, Is it likely? I don't know. But it's possible that your sister will repent. Uh, It's possible that your sister will see the error of her ways. It's possible that the reality of your sister's true salvation will be seen in her eventual repentance. But kind of the matter is, we don't know. We don't know until she does repent. But I'll tell you this, straight talk, if she really is saved, uh, then she will repent. Now, I know that there's some people go on and on. Well, uh, maybe she's not really saved now. Maybe she will be saved. Maybe, that, I, look, I don't really know. But it will say this, that if she's really saved, then eventually she will come to repentance. So, straight talk, your literal question was, is it possible that she remains saved? Yes, it's possible. God alone knows. But if so, then she will demonstrate repentance before the end. Next question comes from Now I Know, who asks this question. Uh, In Acts chapter 28, verse 8, Why didn't the Romans believe and free Paul when he made Publius's father from his sickness a miraculous cure? Did they simply think it was witchcraft or did they not see it happen at all? (laughs) Well, now I know. I think I'm trying to answer that question from a Roman perspective. So they're there in Acts chapter 28, and they finally make it to the island of Malta. And as they're there on Malta after this shipwreck, uh, Paul, being a true servant as it is, not expecting other people to serve him, but he's out being a servant, he goes out and he uh, gathers firewood. And in this bundle of firewood that he gathers, there's a snake, and the snake comes out, and it's an especially poisonous snake. It bites him. And everybody waits for Paul to die, and he doesn't die. Then Paul prays for another man, as now I know asks, about um, Publius's father, and he's healed. Yet the Romans still didn't believe. Well, it's not that the Romans perhaps didn't believe. Um, now I know, the Roman soldiers, the Roman officials guarding Paul and the other prisoners, they didn't have that choice. It wasn't up to them. They didn't have the authority to just say, wow, we really believe this guy, let us go free. No, Paul had to be delivered to Rome. And if Paul was not delivered to Rome, whatever Roman soldiers or guards were responsible for him not getting to Rome, they themselves would be killed. So the Romans who had Paul in their custody, they didn't have any choice about it. They couldn't just decide, well, Paul's a good and godly man and look, the power of the miraculous is with him. Those responses were not up to Paul, excuse me, up to the Romans guarding Paul at all. Thank you for that question, now I know. Uh, Another question here from Tim, who asks, Why are there long lists of stuff in the Bible, and how many of this and that does it help our spiritual walk? (laughs) Tim, may I just say, I love the honesty of your question there you are. You're reading through Leviticus and you go, man, this is a big, long list. You're reading through Chronicles. Man, this is a big, long list. What is this? Is this kind of a waste of my time? No. Let me explain why. Number one, Tim, maybe a list of how the land in the nation of Israel was divided among the 12 tribes, as we find, for example, in the book of Joshua. Maybe that doesn't excite us very much, but you know who it would excite? it would excite the people who were receiving the land. You see, not all of God's word was written directly for us. Now, there's things that we can learn about it. I learned from the division of the land that it has real land, that this is real boundaries. This isn't a spiritual land. This is real land with real boundaries. That's what I learned from this. So, but for the people who were actually receiving the land, Oh, wow, it was even a greater thing, a better thing. That's number one. Number two, I would say this. There is a hidden truth and power in these genealogies. Uh, Let me explain to you a story. And again, I I can't verify this story. It's just a story I've heard, and I have no reason to believe it's not true. But uh, how a Bible translator was working translating the Gospels specifically the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke for some uh, group of tribal people who didn't have a Bible. And he kind of thought this, that the genealogies were the least important part of the Gospels. So he was going to leave that for the end. And that was just a general attitude. I'll leave that for the end. Well, so he translated all of the Gospel except for the genealogy, he presented it to the tribal people, and yeah, they thought it was okay. Of course, they appreciated the story. But then he gave them the genealogy. You know, I don't know, a week or two later, oh yeah, here's the genealogy. This goes into earlier chapters. Forgot uh, to put it in there before. As soon as he gave those tribal people the genealogies, they were astounded. This is what they said. They said, you mean this is a true story? This is for real? This actually happened? You see, the genealogical line demonstrated to that tribal group of people that the story of Jesus dealt with a real person who had a real father and mother and a real grandfather and great-grandfather and going back through the generations. In some ways, to them, it was the most important part of the gospel because it confirmed for them that Jesus was a real person. So I guess the importance of such lists is in the eye of the beholder. And it's not like every verse can be a John 3.16 or a Romans 8.28, but uh, there's good that God has to give to us even in the genealogies. Okay, let me deal with one more question, and I take it this is our last question here of the day. Another question asks this, Pastor, should I feel guilty for not working and staying at home? I just want to focus on my family. I don't have much, but I have enough, and I'm thankful God is providing enough through my husband. Well, another question. um, No, you should not feel guilty. I, I mean, look, taking your question as you presented it, you're a woman married to a believer, and you guys aren't wealthy, but God's providing enough through your husband's work. You should not feel guilty at all for staying at home and investing as much as possible into your children, into your home, um, into your family. It's a good and appropriate thing to do. And instead of feeling guilty about it, you should thank God that you have the opportunity, because not everybody in your general life circumstance has that opportunity. Those that do should not feel guilty about receiving that, and they should regard it with great gratitude as a blessing from the Lord. Whew! That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us on our live stream today, and uh, thank you to my grandkids Serena and Jay for joining us at the beginning of our live stream. Sorry for a little hiccup in the beginning, but I'm glad we got it on track, and I'm so so poss- uh, so grateful. For every one of the kids and parents and grandparents who sent in questions to the kids q and I'm certain that we're going to do it again. So if we do it again, well, you should take a look and send us a question by video or audio. I think it would be wonderful to do that. So thank you so much for your participation in this. It made it kind of a special Q&A. And again, so, so pleased that you could join us. Thank you. God bless you. And uh, we'll see you again next week when at Thursday at 12 noon, we have our live Q&A once again. Thanks and blessings. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.